Our Father, again we come to you in knowledge that uh, apart from grace, um, we would be like those that we're talking about tonight. So give us uh, a renewed sense of the fact that we are not more righteous than they, but that we are the recipients of your grace, of your illumination, of your salvation through the person of Christ. However, we do ask that you would give us the skills and the wisdom to be the um, faithful people we should be in our own generation. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last time we started reviewing this article out of uh, U.S. News and World Report, and I said that I wanted to um, kind of use this as a foil to review the how to use the framework. So I want to, just so we get our minds back in gear on this, I want to uh, cover um, two of the techniques that, that are used in the world system. And then I want to uh, complete the article so we can get into the notes and get moving again in the material. The first thing to remember that uh, is involved in all these discussions and this, this is always involved, um, that any time we're involved in a discussion, there's certain baggage that's brought to the table. And we talk about strategic envelopment. We've done this again and again, but it needs, it needs repetition. You cannot talk about any particular subject without setting it inside of a worldview. Now, it's either going to be a self-consciously thought through worldview or sloppily, almost unperceived worldview. But worldview there will be. And this article is an eloquent, uh, eloquent illustration of this. So we saw that Paul, the apostle, used strategic envelopment at Athens in Acts 17. He used it again in Acts 14 in that when he went into the people, he immediately began discussing, quote, religion from within the creator-creature distinction. He took it for granted. There's no argument for that. That's the presupposition of his, of his whole approach that he used there. Then we said, second and last time, besides the, the tactic of strategic envelopment, we said that there's the tactical use of words and, and I should have said, actually, the tactics of language and sentences in particular. It's not just words. They're sentences. So we've got the strategic envelopment, and we've got the tactical use of language. And in the tactical use of language, we pointed out several things. One of those things is that words and language are very deeply and profoundly spiritual. We use Proverbs 123 to show that. This was understood in the times of the Bible. It is not well understood in our time. We've lived probably for about 100 to, 20 years, 100 to 120 years, we have lived in an intellectual climate that distinguishes between the written word and the spirit. And this is because we live in a highly mystical age. And the word is considered to be dry, dry orthodoxy, you've heard that term expressed. And the spirit is over here. 
Well, that's not scriptural, because how do you explain then passages like we covered last week, Proverbs 1.23, where it says, Listen to me while I pour out my spirit and make my words known. Now, how do you explain that? That's parallel, synonymous parallelism. There's no bifurcation between the spirit and the word. One isn't dead and the other alive. So, and, and we showed parallels uh, with Ephesians and Colossians, and we went through that. And then my point in going through that was that when we talk about the tactical use of language, and we gave those illustrations last week, and uh, that it reminds us we're in a spiritual conflict. Ultimately, when ideas are bounced back and forth, there's spirits associated with those ideas. The ideas are not little, some little pieces of information that just kind of a, like bits in a computer. No, no. That's a very naive way of looking at things. And this Bible is far deeper than that. There's more to this than just surface information. And we gave some illustrations. We used such sentences as, uh, even you could learn something that simple. Innocent-looking sentence but full of accused accusations. And that's a tactic we want to look at as we continue on tonight and finish critiquing this article. Okay, now when we, uh, last week we started in by noting that in the title of this U.S. News of War Report article, you have to sub, subtitle it says, um, it may be a many splendid thing, or why we fall in love, it may be a many splendid thing, but romance relies on Stone Age rules to get started. And I, well, we discussed that. And we said that here's a classic instance of strategic envelopment. The topic appears to be, both in the tactical use of language in that sentence, the, to the topic appears to be love and romance. Actually, what's going on is there's a strategic envelopment of the whole topic viewed completely within an evolutionary frame of reference, and the whole article actually has a deeper agenda. Whether it's conscious, it's just guy Josh Fishman who wrote it. Whether he really thinks this way or not, I don't know. But we don't have to argue that the man consciously chose to do this because the God of this world is a deceiver. And he controls, he controls the mind of the unregenerate. He controls enough of our minds, leave alone the minds of the unregenerate. So... It doesn't have to mean that he consciously set out to do this. But whether the man set out to do this or not, that's what the article, in fact, does. And we went down uh, and showed how it, this happened. That everything is, is uh, phrased within this evolutionary worldview. And the, the classic incident on page 42, um, where the anthropologist doing the research says, the issue is, how do two bodies get close enough to procreate? Um, that's the issue as far as he's concerned. Because that is the issue in evolution, is survival of the fittest. And so all of that is taken for granted, you see. And the article doesn't start out in saying, we will now discuss evolutionary theories application to love. It's not stated that clearly. And that's why it's so deceptive. And you have to watch this. We have to guard and protect our children against this. This is going on all the time on every subject that we can find. And remember we went last week to Deuteronomy chapter 6 where we are instructed in our homes to teach 
children constantly in terms of Scripture. It doesn't mean telling them Bible stories every waking hour. That's not what Deuteronomy 6 is talking about. What it's talking about is that whatever you speak of, whatever you do, put it and let it be enveloped inside a biblical frame of reference. Okay, now let's back up a moment and look at the subtitle again. And imagine if instead of the subtitle being what it is, imagine if we read the following. Why we fall in love. It It may be a many splendid thing, but romance relies on the Creator's design to get started. Now what does that do immediately? It changes the whole discussion. And what have I done? I've changed probably no more than six words in the sentence. And in changing six words in that sentence, we've totally altered the whole discussion. Right from the start. Whole thing's completely different ball game. We've gone from football to baseball immediately. Just altering six words in the subtitle. Now that shows you the power of language. And then as we go through, obviously if you've read this article, you know that the whole thing is just basically about reproduction. Love and romance exist as triggers to further procreation, to further survival of the spittest. That's the whole theory. That's the whole thing in this thing. So what we want to do as we go through this, and they make their points, this little piece of research did this, and this little piece of research does that, and so on. We want to say, well, what does the Scripture say? Always ask, what saith the Scripture? Don't let these ideas just float in your mind. They're dangerous. They float in your mind and they'll, they'll corrupt. So you have to put them against Scripture. And sometimes you won't know what Scripture says. That's okay. At least you're asking the right question. What does Scripture say? I don't know what Scripture says on this subject, but I've got to find out sometime. And then maybe it would make you a better listener when the Bible is taught. Because now you've got more questions that you want to find answers to. And it might make you a better reader of the Scripture. So when you do read the Scripture, and verse after verse, chapter after chapter, you're now looking for things that you know that you need to know. One of the things that we want to do when we approach this issue is go back to the framework and ask ourselves, in Scripture, where do we encounter first the divine institution of marriage? And of course, we encounter it in creation. So let's go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And let's find out in Genesis 1 and 2 how God phrases the issue. And armed with that, then we're going to come back and see how clever a deception we're facing here. Because remember, Satan cannot deceive by presenting bulk error. Satan never, never, never deceives us. I mean, you know, if we were total morons, he probably could do it. He could probably deceive us by presenting bulk, gross, clear-cut error. But most of us are a little more sophisticated than that. And so Satan never comes in with bulk error. He always comes in with enough truth 
that's undeniable. So you can't deny the truth part without really acting like you're, you're stupid or something. So what he tries to do is attach to the truth this entire enveloping framework so when you get into the truth, all of a sudden you're sucked in to the whole worldview that he's packed with it. So let's go to the scripture, Genesis 1, 28, 29, and 30, all the way back to original creation. I have in mind now the sentence on page 42, left column, that the guy says, how do two bodies get close enough together to procreate? Okay? And the rest of it is all peripheral to that. We'll show some of the peripheral stuff. But that's the big idea. And that's really the article. That's the substance of this article. All right, go back to Genesis 1.28. And this is God's address about procreation. God bless them. Who did God bless, first of all? Who is the them? Them is a pronoun. Pronouns always refer to a previous noun. What is the antecedent of the pronoun them? Notice, is it a singular pronoun or is it a plural? It's a plural pronoun. It refers back to two nouns. And what are the two nouns? Must be in previous verses. Sure enough, verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him. Male and female, he created them. So, the maleness and the femaleness that is described for man is described in this text differently than the procreation of animals. And what marks off men from animals here? There's a lot of things that mark it off in the text. Let's observe. Verse 24, God makes the land animals. And he tells them, that after their kind, let them made the beasts after their kind, the cattle after their kind, everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image. So right away, whatever this maleness and femaleness is in man, it is not the same as maleness and femaleness in animals. There is not the continuity of being. Remember the continuity of being? The idea that you have a scale and all the creation can be scaled off in degrees. There's no qualitative difference. Everything's just a quantitative difference. That Bible isn't that way. The Bible says that reality is structured. There's God way up here. He's the creator. And under him there's man. And below man there are animals. And the difference between man and animals is that man is created as an analog of God, or what we said back years ago, is that he is a theomorph. He is made in the form of God. It doesn't say God is made in the form of man. It says man is made in the form of God. So it's a theomorph. It's not the other way around. So you have man now made in God's image. Now, after that grand point is made, what is man said to do in verse 26? Is he given a mandate merely to survive and outcompete? What is the mission of the man? The mission of the man is to rule, is to have dominion. So now we have something else. 
Man is not only separated from the animal kingdom, he is the ruler of the animal kingdom. Ooh, how offensive today when we worship Mother Earth Day because of Dr. Professor White, who years ago wrote this article and blamed Christianity for all the garbage in the world. And uh, very foolish, because the Bible teaches stewardship. And White was frankly wrong. Historically, he is incorrect. The Christian worldview stresses stewardship over the creation. And the place where Christianity interacts with the ecology and the environment is precisely the area where they don't want to listen. Which is what? That we made the entire universe a junkyard by our sin. And that, oh, we can't, we're not that responsible for the environment. Oh, no, we can't tolerate that level of responsibility, can we now? See, we don't want to talk about ecology that radically. But the Bible teaches that we are to have dominion. With all due respect to PETA and all the rest of the groups. So here we have the reproduction in order to do what? To reproduce in order to reproduce in order to reproduce? Or is it to reproduce the rulers in history? The cosmic reason is to build a population of godly men and women who will rule. That's the purpose of the procreation. Not to survive, not to pass the genes on. There's a higher purpose involved here. The genes themselves are only to serve a purpose. And then we come to Genesis 2, and we have the obvious situation where man is starting to dominate, starting to rule. And God allows him, in verse 19, to start naming, starting to understand his environment. He says, verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. And in verse 18, he defines the male and the female at the high level of the image of God, not at the low level of animals procreating. In verse 18, it says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The picture, remember, is that God gave a call to Adam. Eve wasn't around when that call came. The instructions of what Adam was to do in the garden were given before Eve was there. The call came to the man. But the man, the male, solitary male, being alone, could not fulfill the calling. So herein is a marvelous thing. We have the call of God which is impossible for the single solitary man to execute without a helper. And the word helper here is not a diminutive term. It is the same word, Aetzer, that is used for God. God is my Aetzer, Eliezer. Remember the name? What does that mean? Eli is El, God, E, my God, Aetzer, my helper. My God is my helper. So, that's the word that's used for the female heel. So, she is brought in and the man has to go out and figure out that he can't execute the plan without somebody there that's competent to help him execute the plan. So, he has to have the female. Now, what is he executing? 
getting his genes passed to the next generation? Is that the call of Adam? I don't know. It's noticing nothing about genes here. Verse 18. You see anything about genes in verse 18? But for that matter, anywhere in chapter 1 and 2, God just says, go out and make babies so the babies can make babies so the babies can make babies and more babies. Is that what this is all about? No. There's a purpose for man. And the reproduction is to produce the godly family to rule the cosmos. Now, that's the setting. Now, there's something else here. The man is to produce fruit from the creation. Remember the garden? He's to tend it, and he is to produce. So, let's look at the production. God sets forward in his creation designs that are revelatory. Now, God forbid they should ever teach this in a public school. But when you deal with mathematics, when you deal with language, when you deal with music, when you deal with art, when you deal with science, physics, chemistry, biology, what are you dealing with? Creation structures. And whose handiwork is that? God's handiwork. Learning in any of these areas, people, is what we were made to do to produce out of this universe that God put us in fruit to his glory. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's the purpose of our life, to produce that sort of fruit. And involved, of course, in that is a profound worship of God. And out of that comes moral character and integrity. So, all of that's involved. Now, here's the, here's the catch. There is an analogy between the production of man and the production of animals. And it's this analogy that is the, this is the tool and the channel of deception. Because... These investigators, being anthropologists and psychologists and biologists that are quoted in this article, see this parallelism. There's very strong parallelism, physiologically, anatomically, between animals and men. So now what do we make of that analogy as Christians, Bible-believing Christians? How do we integrate that with a text? Okay. If man is made in God's image and animals are not made in God's image, then it follows that what is the same about animals and what is the same about man must have some revelatory function. And so when plants and animals reproduce, the very method of production becomes a physical and temporal revelation of this spiritual production that God has wanted from eternity past for his creatures. The physical structures are analogs to the spiritual truths. This is not some hokey-pokey kind of excuse. We all know from reading the New Testament, what is the marriage institution revelatory of? Every, every wedding we have, we go through the same text, same thing, always in the New Testament, and what are we talking about? Christ and the church. 
Now, does that have to do with cats, dogs, and doves? No, that has to do with the heart of God's plan for his cosmos. So now, let's try something that really stressful. I mean, this takes brilliant IQ to do this now. 200 IQ level to make this deduction. God is designing these physical pictures in order to point where? Is the arrow pointing down from man and saying, look, man, look, you go down here to learn so that you can come back up here. No. What we do is we go down here, we see certain things in the light of the Lord, the Creator, and we come back here. We, use, we actually are coming up. We are saying, look at what God has designed down here. That is an analog to the truths up here. This is what I call top-down thinking. And the article is all bottom-up thinking. The article establishes the truths down at the animal level and tries to raise them for insights into the human level. You see that sentence after sentence in this article. And yet, as Christians, that is exactly opposite to what we're supposed to be doing. We are to think God's thoughts after him. And we are to take his thoughts that are higher than the highest mountains and bring them down into the valleys of our experience so that we can enjoy him. And so we are top-down thinkers. The unregenerate is a bottom-up thinker. Let's continue in the article now and see how this works out. Tactical use of language. It's all through the article. I tried with a, a um, highlighter to go through this article, and I got most of the article highlighted because I was going to highlight every place that I could find an example of the tactical use of language. Uh, what I should have done was highlight the places that in green that are free of it. But let's look on uh, the right side of page 42. He goes on that paragraph, the, the, the first full paragraph starts out, you see where it says, and then the talk flows more easily, and then this couple get involved, and then the last sentence in that paragraph, and to promises to have and to hold forever and ever. A little sarcastic remark about marriage. Now watch the bottom-up thinking. What he does here in transitioning from the last sentence of that paragraph to the first sentence of the next one is he sets marriage as something to be explained and gather insight from the animal level, bottom-up. We first get our insights here and then we carry them up. When, what does Paul do in Ephesians about marriage? He gets them in the high order of the Trinity and brings them down. So he says the first sentence in that next paragraph, this is all well and good, but beneath love's ineffable mysteries and majesty. Notice the word preposition beneath. Beneath love's ineffable mysteries. In other words, the foundation of it all is not God and the structures of his word. But beneath it all lie some basic principles of biology and genetics. Mother Nature, notice it's capitalized. One must always revere deity. Mother Nature casts her strong shadow over much of that initial activity. And it goes on flirting, for example, has rules across cultures and countries based on gestures that seem... And now, this is a good... I love how this goes. Flirting. 
Now we're talking about flirting now. And we just can't avoid getting Darwin involved in flirting. We've just got to trot in the evolutionary worldview in the middle of the flirting. So the sentence reads, it seems anchored deep within our evolutionary history. We're supposed to read this with a spooky voice now. And we go on. And those gestures the scientists are now discovering follow codes of attraction. This is the sentence that I pointed out last week. This is really a ripper when you think about this one codes of attraction that may be millions of years old, and the codes, in turn, have evolved. And I pointed out, now, isn't that stupid? You ever see a code that evolves? You work with computers? Do you ever see a computer program evolve and still work? So, again, this is all metaphor. It's cheap metaphor. But it's all manipulatory. Very manipulating. And if you don't learn proper kinds of literacy to unravel this, you, you're a victim. You've got to be able, yes, you can laugh at it, but you've got to know why you're laughing at it. And let's go on further, and we'll see some more of how this tactical use of language occurs. On page 44, this is, a, this is another interesting sentence. First paragraph, upper left, page 44. Men, for instance, have been drawn to certain size hips and waists for more than 20,000 years. Now, isn't that interesting? I wonder where they got that information from. Did they take some I mean, measurements of Neanderthal for 20,000 years? You'd think this would be documented somewhere. It isn't. There's no documentation of this. There's just a statement. What they observe is a behavior, and then they attribute to a 20,000 year history. Everybody knows that, just 20,000 years. Well, maybe I don't... No, that's not the way it is. But there... Watch what is happening here. There's no argumentation, is there? It's just put in connotation. It's argument by connotation. Never directly addressed. Not once in this article is the truthfulness of the evolutionary worldview ever dealt with in an explicit fashion. It's all taken for granted, and that's what makes it so insidious. If you don't think this is insidious, turn it around. Go home and rewrite parts of this article as you would write if you were the Christian writer. Write it biblically and watch what happens when you get done writing it. And then put them side by side. Both articles talking about exactly the same subject. And you come away with two totally different spirits. Why? This is the power of the Word. Okay, continue. Look at the next one. Discussing a couple. And they talk about the guy's reaction, researchers contend, has some deeply rooted biology behind it, that waist and hip size is better linked to having babies than a less curvaceous figure. Now, I've never noticed that in any romantic novel or any great novel that I've written. The only time I can remember reading anything like this was G. Gordon Liddy's book, Will when he deliberately married a wide-hipped German lady because he wanted strong boys. And I've, ne I've never heard a guy think of mixing his genes and picking out his girlfriend on the basis of what genetic materials that she carried. But nevertheless, this is the intent of these authors, that all of the, all of the higher functions of man don't count. 
It's all down here, bottom-up thinking. We first explain it down here, and then we explain the higher in terms of the lower. People, it's exactly wrong. What are we taught in the Christian life when we encounter all the grunge in our lives? Do we go from bottom-up, or are we supposed to take the truths of God and the truths of His Word, the big plans of God, and bring them down to our situation, claiming the promises of God? I mean, take, the, take Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Called according to what? Called according to His purpose. Who's doing the calling? His genes? God is doing the calling. So right there, see the very structure of that promise? It's top-down thinking. This is of the earth. This is bottom-up thinking. So it goes on, and we, we can cite sentence after sentence after sentence. Another, if you go to the middle column, page 44, notice what it is. Look at this one. This, I love this expression. The name of the game. The game of life, in the long run, is to move your genes into succeeding generations. Like I said last week, wouldn't that make a good wedding service? Millions of years ago, human ancestors had to find a mate to do this without help from internet dating services. Well, isn't that good? DNA analysis, social clubs, or village matchmakers. All he had to do was to go on the outside appearance. Now, this is all conjecture, people. Absolutely all conjecture. There's not one argument in here for the proof of this. It's just piled up sentence after sentence after sentence. And you know, the sad thing is, as poorly educated as we are in our generation today, a kid can read this or an adult can read it and walk away thinking, geez, you know, that guy had some good points. Well, let's go on. On the right side, it says... Um, what Kang, let's see where the, sentence, the paragraph says, what Kang probably started chasing, blah, 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 blah. It goes on, after all, mating with a creature who produces sickly children or who dies before raising them is a fast trip down an evolutionary dead end. Now watch how he follows that. Birds, with their elaborate plumage, actually figured this one out long before humans did. Now, isn't that good? Go to your bird feeder and have a discussion with all the lessons that the sparrows and starlings have learned. And they'll share with you all these insights that they've had from the past. You see? See how stupid this is when you start unraveling it? It's just one continuous... That's why I picked this article out. This has got to be a classic. Okay, and it goes on, uh, talking about evolutionary advantages and so on. Now. What I want to do to finish out the article, uh, if you go over um, to... There's another, another quote on, on page 46, uh, middle, uh, middle column, down the last, and just before getting into someone's genes. The sentence just before that. So it makes sense from the long-term view of evolutionary success to be most attracted to fertile youth. Now, let's think about something here. There is a truth to the fact that God's creatures were designed to produce and survive in history, to overproduce because of the fall and everything else. But why? Why is that design in there? 
not so that they can survive in the evolutionary term, but rather that the kingdom of God can come. That this great family of mankind can be taught to rule and subdue the earth. That's why it's going on. That's what make, makes the difference. Okay, coming over on um, page 47. This is cute. Middle chapter, a uh, middle column. Notice the paragraph that starts, there are several signals about safety that remain constant from Spokane to Bali and from people to apes, indicating their evolutionary importance. See how everything is structured in order to produce evolutionary advantages. Okay, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to draw a moral conclusion just very shortly coming up. I want you to be convinced that this author is making his case that you evaluate good and bad behavior when you're, when you're bottom-up thinking. The good and the bad. Good equals what? We've had a few sentences there. Good is what survives. Right? That's the highest good survives. And what's bad? The evolutionary dead end. Non-survival. Minus S. Alright? Now look at this one. The shoulder shrug is a prime example. You ever see a cat shrug their shoulder? I never have. The reflex is a sign of uncertainty. Part of an age-old startle response intended to protect the vulnerable neck. A chagrin Bill Clinton did it on national television when he apologized for his illicit relationship with Mona Lewinsky, the anthropologist notes. The tilted head uses some of these same muscles, and this, this is... Th now watch this one. Watch this one. Now. This, we're talking about gestures that go back millions of years. And why is that? The psychologist asks. And no sooner does the psychologist ask the question of the behavioral psychologist but he has a friend over here, Mr. Brown. He's a professor of biology. He comes, I've got the answer for you, Mr. Psychologist. So the psychologist turns to the biologist, one expert to another. And now, in this sentence, the expert biologist is brought into the discussion in physiology. Both gestures using muscles and nerve circuits that can be traced back through millions of years of animal history and seen in animals today are signs of withdrawal. Not what you see in a prelude to an attack. Nor is holding your hands palm up as one of the men talking to the dark-skinned woman and I have it on us does. The gesture is controlled by neural circuits found in anatomy as simple as fish brains and spinal cords. So it predates palms. Now, what, what's the point here? You see, he, he is very clever how they're doing this. How did the biologist make the conclusion that those, those circuits, those neural circuits, are primary. Because there's parallel in the design between animals. Same designer. You know, most cars have four wheels. That's why Volkswagens evolved from Dodges. So we see that there's a parallelism between animals. So he goes to the most simple animal first, picks the parallel, and then discards the rest. So now he's building inferences from an inference. 
The inference is that I explain similarity by evolutionary descent rather than explain it how. How do we as Christians explain similarity? Same designer. But he has chosen to phrase enveloping, safe frame of reference, here's strategic development now, We've enveloped the topic in an evolutionary frame of reference, so now what do we not have available any longer? We can't explain the similarities in terms of common design, so we have to explain the similarities in terms of temporal descent over time. And if we do that, when it's ordered to the primitive things, that's why you can come to the end of the sentence, and it says, fish brains and spinal cords predate palms. Fishes don't have hands. They represent... Uh, an earlier evolution, okay? So, but they do share spinal column. So that means the spinal column is more primitive in the most advanced creature. But all that's saying is that's the evolutionary premise. I know, I've heard that 150 times up to this point. I haven't heard any proof of it. I've just heard it repeated endlessly in the article. So now we come down to the end. And to watch how things conclude, Turn now to the last page. Now, I, I don't know whether the authors... The more I read this article, the more I can't help but think that there's a tongue-in-cheek to this whole thing that the authors may have intended. But if you follow the logic, what did I say? I said that an evolutionary basis, what is good and evil? How do you define good and evil? Good is what survives. Evil is what doesn't survive. Now, by the way, does anybody see the moral flaw in that argument? Right there, there's a moral flaw. Why is surviving good? Well, I know lots of people commit suicide. They don't believe surviving is good. They believe taking their life is better. So, why is it obvious intuitively that surviving is good? Where are you getting that from? So, this is a moral imposition. This is how morals and ethics are rooted in worldviews and why it does matter what you believe and it does matter what worldview is taught because it affects your ethical judgments. Okay. So, we have that to contend with. We've made the point that man is just a developed animal. And we know that animals have stimulus response. What about man? What do we know that's different because we are made in God's image? How do we plot the stimulus response equation for us? It's stimulus, choice, response. That is the first divine institution. That is what separates man from animal. It's called free will. By the way, if you're an atheist, you can't believe in free will. So, here you have a case where all this is set up, and now we come to the grand finale of the article. The fight over the evolution of rape. Now, what if I said, remember you heard me say over these years, I've said, if you want to learn unbelief, don't get it in pablum form from a sloppy Christian campus. Go to an unbeliever that's skilled, that has the courage to take his unbelief and his paganism out to its logical conclusion. You can learn so much from an honest 
articulate pagan. You've got to find one and make a friend because they'll teach you a lot, an awful lot about this world. If you can't find one in reality, in person, find a good book. Read some of the great atheists of history because they really will teach you something. Now, these people who have written a book published by MIT, A Natural History of Rape. And the argument simply is that rape is part of our evolutionary heritage. Who's stronger, male or female? Physically. Not emotionally, but physically. So, the article starts out now. Here we've been talking yak, 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 yak for five pages about evolution. There's no romance in love. Remember the Q&A we had last year? Basically, what we've done, we cut all that out because, I mean, fish don't have romance, but they have reproduction. So that's the most basic thing, bottom-up thinking, see? Now, all of a sudden, we're faced with a, uh-oh, where does this lead us? Down what primrose path are we traversing now? And sure enough, these authors have been smart enough to see. Oh, let's take this a little further, friends. And what they're arguing, second paragraph, middle column, page 48, biologist Randy Thornhill and anthropologist Craig Palmer, in a new book that's become a lightning rod for controversy, argue that rape has evolved over millions of years as a strategy to help men reproduce. What do we say was good? Huh? What do we define good to be? Now, what are you going to do with this? You see why this book has become so controversial? You set this thing up, stupid. And now you have to live with the consequences. You don't like them, do you? But you can't do anything about it. Illuminating to the whole idea. So, in the first paragraph, we have the feeling of incense on the part of, of the women. They're saying men evolved to be rapists? Terry Gutierrez cries incredulously. That's absurd. Women are getting seriously hurt and they're saying that it's evolution? Yeah. Matter of fact, Terry, that's what they're saying. It's what they learned in the sixth grade biology class, I believe. Well, creationists wanted to say something and couldn't say it in biology class. So, you teach the guys in biology about survival of the fittest. You implicitly program them year after year. In this framework, what's your problem? If they draw the conclusion, huh? What's the problem here? Well, I don't like it! Hon, what you like and what you don't like has nothing to do with it. You might not like hot water, but we still have hot water, right? If your only opposition is you don't like it, that's not an opposition. I don't care if you like it or not. Maybe I do. So, you're in a very weak position to say, that must be wrong because I don't like it. What's wrong with that thinking? Because you're not appealing to a transcendent standard. You're just saying it's your personal subjective dislike to be hurt. Well, sure, cats don't like to be hurt either. Dogs don't like to be hurt. Horses don't like to be hurt. It's painful. But how do you show it's bad? You can't. Unless you have a standard that you're bringing into the discussion. And the standard went out with this. It got shot. It got kicked out of the house. 
at the first step. Now we're living in the house, and now we don't like what we're living in the house, do we? So, this whole end of this article is tremendous. And they go through all kind of mealy mouth ways of trying to sidestep it, and, well, I don't like that, and I don't think they've proved their case, and all the rest of it. I don't have to prove their case. All they have to do is show the worldview exists. This worldview leads to that conclusion. So, we want to conclude with some scriptures tonight that show how the Word of God speaks to what we just have spent two evenings going through. We've taken an article by a modern group of writers in one of the best-selling magazines in the United States. And I don't think this is atypical. U.S. News and Report, Time Magazine, and what's the other? Newsweek. They don't sell those magazines because they're way out on the left or the right. Those magazines are being designed, sold, written, and published to sell numbers. And you've got to sell and pitch it to the center of the population. So these articles are written to what our culture wants to hear. They have to be. They wouldn't sell a magazine if it wasn't that way. That's stupid. Pragmatism. Follow the money. So they pitch these articles to the way our society and our neighbors and our institutions think. And this is how they think. So let's look at a series of Bible verses. First turn is Proverbs 26. Remember we said uh, last week that there's a technical term the scriptures use to describe what we're talking about. The deceptions of this world's thinking are called in the scripture vanity. And what is the one book in the Bible that is the most thorough exposition of vanity? Song of Songs. I mean, Song of Ecclesiastes. The poem of Ecclesiastes. Solomon. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Now, this at first is one of those so-called contradictions in the text. It's not a contradiction in the text. This is the way young women and young men were taught in these days. They were taught largely by means of Proverbs. It required they did not have to have formal literacy. They could memorize these, but they were passed on from father to son, father to son, for generations after generation after generation. Solomon inscripturated these in his own time at the height of this wisdom school in Israel. Verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now what that means is, among other things, is that when you answer... Don't start on the same set of presuppositions as the fool, or you will become just like him. You cannot answer these authors of this article on what their view of romance is while you're still accepting the basis from which they're proceeding. If, you're, if you believe in your heart that the evolutionary worldview is basically correct, and somehow you've managed to mishmash the Bible along with that, don't try to argue with these people. Because if you try to argue with them and try to take this worldview, you're going to come right out in the same path. You will become like them. So Proverbs warns us, do not answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest you become like him. Okay? And that goes back. Remember, a simple thing. Don't answer a question until you've thought about it. Simple illustration. How many times last week did you beat your wife? 
can't answer the question without condemning yourself. Why? Because you ran into a trap. You bought in to the whole way the question was designed in the first place. You're not obligated to accept the basis of the question. You have a right to redefine the question. Claim it. It's your privilege in conversation. Now, the next verse looks like it conflicts with the previous verse. It says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. What that's talking about is what Francis Schaeffer developed back in the 70s when he said one of the things that you can often do when you're dealing even in your own mind with your own flesh and you, you, it wants to do something and you, you quote scripture against it and it's like water off a duck's back. It doesn't work. A technique to use in that situation is to simply turn right around and say, okay, if I do this, where is it going to lead? Take it to the logical conclusion. Now, what did we do in this article? Took it to the logical conclusion. It leads to rape. Duh. See? So, why do we do that? Because we're not, apparently, apparently, we're not bringing the Bible in to set up defense mechanisms. I haven't mentioned the Bible. I haven't mentioned it once. All we're saying, oh, that's an interesting view. Let's see if I understand that. That means that if I believe that, then I should be able to do this. And this. And this. Oh, you say I can't do that? Why, why is it that you can't, I can't do that? See, that's what you're doing. You're pulling out of the deception and exposing it by showing its foolishness when you keep on operating in that direction. So that's the point of this verse. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You see, what, what that does, it gets to them because now humility is forced up. He can be proudful of his viewpoint, and if you attack him directly, pride will put up the shield. But if you say, well, I want to understand how you really think. I want to get inside your head and say, well, now, if I believe this way, then can I do this? Or can I do that? Or doesn't this lead to this? And now, the problem is, he can't really attack you because it's his position. He doesn't want to be put in the position of attacking himself. So it's, it's humbling type of approach. And sometimes you have to do this, and sometimes this is very hard to do, and sometimes it takes a long time to do. Because if you think about sanctification in your own personal life, isn't that how God does it oftentimes? When we ignore Him, when we turn our backs on Him, He doesn't turn His back on us. But instead of dealing with us directly, He says, okay, I'll cut you some slack. I'll cut you some more. I'll cut you some more. Oh, are you in the ditch now? Oh, geez, how'd you get there? How did God work with the prodigal son? Want to go to the pig pen? You like the pigs? Okay, have, you know, have a ball. Take a vacation down there. Spend all your money. See how you like it. So God, we find, in his sanctifying work, operates exactly the same way. Why? Because he's a wise God. And this is wisdom. All right, let's turn in the New Testament to some passages. Turn to 1 Timothy 6.20. This is just to kind of conclude with learning about vanity and learning about these silly beliefs that permeate our culture.
and that we don't face something that earlier Christians didn't also face. Look at this closing admonition to young Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. You notice throughout this whole article they were always quoting research. Research has shown and it's all behavior psychology, that kind of thing. Research is done. Oh, this is knowledge. This is knowledge. What does Paul say? It's knowledge in name, but not in substance. It's knowledge that is falsely. You see, when you start thinking about this, the Bible is very radical, extremely radical, and extremely skeptical. I once loved to hear unbelievers saying I'm skeptical when they are the most naive, naive people that haven't examined their own belief systems. And I think, you're, you're telling me that you're skeptical? And you haven't seen my skepticism yet. And that's what, this is divine, biblical skepticism. Knowledge, falsely so-called. All right, turn to t- 2 Timothy 2.24. This is um, advice to Timothy and, and about teaching Christians, teaching us, and it's to deal with the issue of getting slammed. And Second uh, Timothy three, Second uh, uh, Timothy two rather, verse twenty-four says, "And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome." That is just not always, in other words, not going around and arguing for the sake of arguing must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, but able and ready to teach, patient when wronged, so forth. With gentleness, doing what to those who are in opposition? Gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So what he's saying is, we, can, we have to strive not to get angry in the flesh, but we are not to be doormats, and we are not to be passive. The church has more passive people than any other segment of society. It's just amazing in this country. We talk, 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 talk about, oh, what's going on in the country? You know, if half the Christians could go down and register to vote instead of 10%, and put their feet where their mouth is, we wouldn't have half the problems. We can't even get people to register to vote. And then they'll spend 364 days of the year fussing about what's going on in the country. So, here's an example. It's saying, you take your stand. You think out on the basis of the Word of God. You be ready to teach, which means you have to have a lesson plan, and you have to think about it and pray about what you're going to say. And don't be afraid to correct those who are in opposition. Yes, you'll be castigated. Yes, you will be uh, laughed at and called narrow-minded and all the rest of it. But tell you what, I've found in my experience that people who come to know the Lord 
through your taking a stand, are eternally grateful to you. You talk about being accepted. People who are led to the Lord because you had the courage to stand firm, take all the hits, take all the gross remarks, take all the junk, but you held firm and you corrected those who are in opposition. They're con- they're no matter what they say with their big mouths, their conscience agrees with you. If you're articulating the Word of God, no matter what they say with this, their conscience bears witness to what you're saying is true. So, just ignore all the hot air. Just hot air and baloney. Just constantly go for the conscience. Go for the conscience. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you've not left us weaponless. We thank you that you have provided for every need. And may you give us courage and the discernment and the grace to be careful, to be wise, but nevertheless to stand firm in the truth in which we walk. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Opportunity, anybody wanted to raise any kind of questions. Um, we had one good contribution just now that uh, if you have the article, uh, and look at the, look at the last page of the article, the left column down at the bottom. And what do you see? I, I didn't notice this. This is, this is good. There's a little, little fine in small print underneath the left column down at the bottom. And Mike Beachel just pointed it out to me. Yeah. See, that's what the last page. See? Does it say anything about romance there? Does it say anything about love there? No. For more information about evolution genetics. So what were they peddling all the time? See? Oh, this was a, this was a great article to train on. Yes. The uh, picture that you put up there uh, at the very end where we were talking about uh, survival and not survival. And that, that whole picture just sort of made me think, well, you know, these, these men that are looking for women with big hips so that they can propagate the species. I don't think there are many men doing that, by the yeah. way. I, right. And as if with consciousness, global consciousness outside of themselves, that that it's this Mother Nature concept, and that you know you, you think of the Christian and, and you get accused of being some sort of mindless automata. Well, now who's the mindless automata? Yeah. When when people you know don't even know that they're being attracted to somebody because they're going to propagate a strong. They don't care after they're dead. What's going on? Right. Um, but, but it's an evolutionary thing. And if you think about it, George, um, that, yes, the article has made the point that there's this super mystical evolutionary thing that's working in the hearts of all um, that supposedly draws people together. Well, there is something that in truth corresponds to that that we're all very conscious of as Christians. And what is that? It's the calling of God. It's the sovereign calling of God. But what about the deceiving spirit that you talked about as well? I mean, 
Oh, yeah. But what I'm saying is, what, what I'm just trying to say, George, is that all these deceptions are, are counterfeits of something. They're not just wholesale creation. Satan never, it really is not too original. What he does, he perverts something that is actually true. So, whereas um, we could say when we meet our mates that we've been brought to them and we can say, oh, well, I saw them and we can narrate it on a human level. But as Christians, we have to acknowledge, but God's sovereignty was involved in all that that we didn't know about. And so that, that call of God, that sovereign working in our lives, that's what's being perverted here. And you have to have something to replace it. So what you have is this esoteric, spooky, evolutionary drive that is subliminal or something. It's also a prophetic crown because the crown that man ultimately gets is with Jesus Christ because Psalm 8 is the very quote taken in Hebrews to describe Jesus as the second Adam because Jesus successfully fulfills the destiny of the human race. And interestingly, isn't this interesting that Jesus does it and he's never married? He must have forgotten to propagate. Didn't get his genes in. I mean, how does Jesus pull it off? And it has nothing to do with his genes. And, that's the, and here's the God-man, who's our model. And he fulfills the calling of God, and genes are involved. Something else is propagated that's analogous to genetic propagation, isn't it? Because what, what does the First John say? And his what dwells in us? His seed dwells in us. So, there's an analogy in regeneration that Jesus does propagate himself in history, but at a, in a different way than what you think. So, the biological propagation is a, is, a, is a physical analog to this other thing that goes on. Jesus is of Abraham's seed that way, backwards, up to. But that's because of the promise of God in Abraham's life. And by the way, what was Abraham's first seed, the, the godly seed? Was it by natural propagation? Well, in one sense it was, but he and Sarah couldn't propagate. So, so what, what went on there? I mean, that was, see, the whole structure, every part of the story conflicts. We're in total collusion on this point. Let's, let's make it catchy. Let's, let's get a lot of people to read it. Let's, let's put love and romance in it. 
Yeah, well, I might have done that. I don't know. I, I, Yeah. Because ultimately, what is said of Jesus is that all things have not been put under his feet, but eventually all things will be put under his feet, the whole creation, not just planet Earth. That little mandate in Genesis 1 concerns the plants, the fish, and the bees. That's the first, first um, set, the first stage of this. But man's rule is to exercise dominion over the whole universe. And, it, it, and Jesus Christ starts it. So there, there's a lot to that. And we're going to learn for all eternity. This is why eternity cannot be conceived as, as you know, you sit in church service for a billion years. It's, it's going to be active ruling, active doing things. It doesn't stop just because we're in eternity. What's different is we don't live in a sinful environment anymore. But the fact is that there's worship and work to do. So, anyway, um, any, anything else? Any comments? Okay, well, next week we're going to get back into the death of Christ. If you read the notes that were handed out tonight, uh, you'll see that it's, this is a rather difficult section. Uh, I don't apologize for it because it's an issue that has to be discussed. Some of you have people that are very strong in the Reformed faith. Uh, some of you have friends that are in the Methodist church or the uh, Armenian-type churches. And they have one view, and the Reformed people have another view. So you should need, you should need to know uh, what's going on here with this. Okay.